the whole fleet of them. Look on the ASA. My gosh. They're all going against the wind. It was basically a cube with inside of sphere where the points of the cube uh, were touching outside of the sphere. So this isn't anything that just is limited to the United States. It's a worldwide phenomenon. I am George Knapp listening to that UFO podcast and having one hell of a good time. Hi everyone and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. My name is Andy and just before we get to this week's pod I wanted to take a few minutes to speak to you without the guest on the line. I've not done one of these intros recorded separately for a while so just thought I'd give you some updates while I had the chance. Uh, before we get to Stephen Bassett who is the guest this week on the podcast and it is part one of part two and let me explain why. Stephen, I don't think I could call this an interview. Stephen is a great speaker and has so much to say, I would say I direct the conversation as best I can. So there's a lot to digest and take in from from Stephen Bassett's talk. I have split it into two parts. So you're going to hear part one, which is my questions to Stephen. And then part two, in a few days' time, I'll release is the listener questions along with a quick fire round as well. Probably the longest quick fire round in the show's history, but it was great listening to Stephen. I got lost and absorbed in it too. He has a wealth of experience and knowledge in this subject. I want to thank everyone who has listened to the podcast either from the start or if you got on board more recently. February was a massive month. Obviously, it kicked off with the Luella Zondo interview, which I'm sure most of you have heard. Got amazing feedback from that, and Lou's doing another round of media appearances just now, so make sure you're checking those out. As well as that, I didn't think the show would hit the heights of February, given the Lou interview, but March was an even better month in terms of downloads and listens, so thank you so, so much. I've just released the George Knapp interview on YouTube, so you can see the video along with that. And again, like the Lou interview, I really do think it adds something more to it as well. Thank you to Dan for helping me get that put together properly, uh, and it's got some timestamps in there as well, so you can jump back and forward between the, the questions that you really want to hear the answers to. So please check that out and subscribe to the YouTube channel that ufo podcast patreon.com has been really popular i'm putting out some exclusive content on there as well never hiding things behind a paywall that the main interviews go out free of charge but there are small sections which i put on there for a little bit extra for people who can support the pod over at patreon.com forward slash that ufo podcast and some fun stuff as well later in the year those sorts of things will get pushed onto the main feed but right now it would just be a a bit of a thank you if you can sign up to patreon to help support the podcast and if you support at the ten dollar plus level then i send you out a free t-shirt as well so look out for more exclusive content coming via patreon.com in the near future as well i'll do as much as i can as a thank you folks of course your listens on the, the free podcast is that the main thing for me and your support and engagement emails tweets direct messages all of the above and sorry if it takes me a little while sometimes to get back to people but it's that the the show is getting more popular i can't help that but it's great and it just does take me a little bit more time because life gets in the way 
And lastly, um, the podcast is coming up on its one-year anniversary on the, the 30th of April, which was a Gary Voorhees interview. And on day one, on the 30th of April, two people listened to the podcast. It's it's um, exponentially grown since then, which is fantastic. But thank you to those two people who listened on day one and shared and liked and retweet and shared it on Facebook and talked about the podcast to help grow it into what it's become today with all of you listening uh, along to me. And when Dan joins me, or if I've got Dave or Gaucho or any of those guys that come on to discuss April's a big month again for the podcast we're kicking off with Stephen Bassett Ryan Sprague is going to be coming on next week for his second appearance on the podcast and later in the month we've got Brandon Fugel joining us as well which is a big interview to get of course promoting the upcoming series of Skinwalker Ranch which kicks off on the 4th of May for listeners in the US or, or Canada so that's all going to be coming up as well you will have heard lastly that uh, I say lastly this is I've said lastly twice now but you know sue me uh, or don't sue me uh, I have been working and in contact with the people over at Contact in the Desert. Now, they asked me to do some interviews to promote this year's Contact in the Desert, which you can check out on their website via Twitter. It's one of those things that, listen, I'm doing this for free. Uh, For me, the opportunity to speak to some of those guests is massive. And there are people on there who I have interviewed already. Deep Prasad, Ryan Sprague, Gary Voorhees, Kevin Day, Simeon Hine and a few others have already been on the podcast uh, and were great to speak to. There are more people on there. For example, Russell Targ is someone who, when I asked, loads of people commented on, I want to get the chance to speak to Russell Targ, and a few others as well. I know it's not to everyone's liking, all the speakers at these conferences, but it is a buffet, there's a lot on there, and you go and pick and choose who you want to listen to, given the breadth of the subject that they want to talk about as well. So there will be some guests from Contact in the Desert coming on to do the usual long-form interview with me, and I'll be also picking some of the other guests as well, who uh, will be coming on to do shorter preview interviews of about 10 to 15 minutes, just to advertise their appearance and have a bit of a chat on there as well, okay? I am under no pressure of who I need to speak to I can pick my own guess and I'll certainly be doing that but if there's anyone you want to hear please get in touch with me and tell me why as well thanks for listening to me folks Uh, before the main interview let me just play a quick message from Dave Partridge Shadows of Your Mind magazine please get liking subscribing retweeting sharing and downloading one of the best bits of content out there in the world of ufology and beyond and it's totally free and all done by Dave so big shout out for Dave and thank you very much hope you enjoy part one of the interview look out for part two with Stephen Bassett in a few days time folks have you ever looked up to the skies and seen something you can't explain or walked deep in the forest and sensed something watching you Do you believe in an afterlife or a hidden veil that can communicate with the living? Then you need Shadows of Your Mind magazine. Download all issues completely free at shadowsmagazine.co.uk Shadows of Your Mind, where your search for the answers begins. Joining me on the show is Stephen Bassett, who is the Executive Director of the Paradigm Research Group and a political activist. Stephen, and I will just say for the second time, welcome to the podcast. We have just had a little bit of a technical error on my end, not checking the storage beforehand. So apologies, but again, welcome to the pod. Hi, Andy. It's good to be back in the UK, if only by internet. Uh, and uh, nice to nice to talk to you again. 
Yes. Uh, now, listen, Steve, I, I asked you, and I'm going to ask you again, what originally brought you to the subject of UFOs or UAPs, as they're more commonly known to most listeners who will be listening to this podcast? I, I, I got involved in 90, 1996. It's been 25 years. Um, I hadn't really engaged the issue prior to that, but I was fully aware of it since I was a kid. Uh, in 1996, I, I volunteered to work for Dr. John Mack in Cambridge, Massachusetts, the Harvard psychiatrist that had taken the incredibly bold uh, step to engage contactees and, and talk to them. And even began to try to develop some research around that. He set up an organization called Program for Extraordinary Experience Research. And I came there as a volunteer, just a volunteer, help out. But it was a wonderful experience. I was there for four months. And then I made the decision to move to Washington, D.C., where I have family and where I've lived off and on for years. I knew it well. And set up uh, an organization called Paradigm Research Group and registered as a lobbyist with the, the House and Senate. Because I knew that no one had ever done that. There was no lobbyist registered on, on, on the issue of extraterrestrial phenomena, period. And I knew that the Washington Post would almost certainly come calling because that's interesting. It's a story. What's going on? So they, they uh, wasn't that long. They came out and interviewed me. And I got a uh, big article on the front page of the business section of the Washington Post, which is a big article. And that's it. That launched my, how would you say, career as an activist engaging this issue. And the rest is history. Why did I choose that route? Because I came to realize that all those years I've been hearing about the issue, but yet there was no resolution. There was nothing coming from the government. It was all very strange. Didn't make sense. But what do you do? You go on with your life. I came to realize that the reason there was no resolution about what this phenomenon was in spite of the fact that plenty of things kept turning up that were quite compelling, was not because there wasn't enough scientific evidence. It wasn't about science. It hadn't been for a long time. The presence of the ETs was confirmed to the United States government no later than 1947. So what's going on? What's going on was politics. There was a decision to embargo this issue for national security reasons, a legal national security policy enforced strongly, but not draconian in a draconian fashion like you, you see in some authoritarian countries. They weren't shooting people. They, they just came up with some very clever ways working from uh, within the military intelligence complex to simply keep it under wraps. A political decision. And therefore, the resolution required a political Solution. And I said, okay, I'm going to go to Washington and, and try to resolve the ET issue through political means. And there weren't, well, no one, no one had really formally done this. There, there have been efforts off and on uh, prior to 1996 to sort of engage the issue politically. 
but it didn't go. They didn't go anywhere, and, and also they weren't they weren't formalized too much, which is why there was not there there wasn't a, a registered lobbyist. I then I then founded the first political action committee addressing this issue. No one had ever done that, and so that's how I got involved. Why I got involved, in a sense, I was lucky in that I found a niche that was uh, essentially empty. No one was doing it, so it gave me. Uh, uh, opportunity to ma make a difference, even though I had very little resources uh, and was new. And now it's been 25 years later. I don't regret it. And I've met a ton of people. And I believe that the resolution finally of the, the extraterrestrial presence, the confirmation, is very close and could very easily happen this year, should happen this year. And uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing that. Now, there's a lot to fill in in 25 years there, and we're not going to have time to do all of that talking to you right now. No. However, going back to, to 1996 and you setting up the Paradigm Research Group, you, you've said already about the, the ET presence or you know the ET cover-up. What was it that made you then and now so certain it is, is ET and not anything else? Again, the, the evidence is overwhelming. And the way evidence works, and this is something, of course, that the practitioners of the embargo were never going to acknowledge. Uh, smoking gun is another classic example of a diversion and bogus thinking that they encouraged. Where's the smoking gun? Where's the latrine from a spaceship? Give me that, then we'll move forward. It's all nonsense. The way evidence works is I think most people know now. You've got a very complex murder trial and you're on the jury. It might take weeks. And you listen to hours and hours of evidence of all types. And you reach a conclusion of guilty, which is the key conclusion. Beyond a reasonable doubt, based on all the evidence, all of it. Not just one part. It's almost impossible for a single piece of evidence to convict somebody in a court of law. Very difficult. I'm not saying it's impossible, but boy, it's very difficult. So you spend hundreds of hours listening to all this evidence. You, you go into a room with 11 other people and you, and you all decide, yes, this evidence is absolutely beyond a reasonable doubt. And you convict. The evidence for the ET presence would fill a room, a, a big room, a huge room. It's massive. And if you examine that evidence, if you examine a decent portion of all that evidence, it's absolutely confirming of an extraterrestrial presence. Now, we could spend the next hour or so running through a lot of this evidence. But I happen to believe that most of your audience already knows this. This is not something shocking to them or a surprise to them. Uh, and I, I have invested the time to get a good sense of the totality of the evidence for this presence. And so I'm convinced. I don't believe. The whole term believer is another language issue. Believer is a term the truth embargo loved. You're a believer. Encouraged it. Turns up in, in articles and books and things. Believer. It's nonsense. That's like saying an atomic physicist who is uh, dealing with the atom believes in atoms. It's absolutely ridiculous. So 
the answer to your question is, if the evidence is looked at, it's confirming. The, uh, and this is tough. Now, this is tough. Everybody, if extraterrestrials were to hover over our major cities with massive craft, yeah, would that, would that prove it? Pretty much, though one could then say, wait a minute, no, 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 these craft have been hidden inside the earth all these years. These people are subterranean dwellers that have been down there building fantastic technology, and now they've just come out of the earth, whatever. But I, very few people would, would not go, yeah, that's it, that's confirming, all right? And that's like saying for a murder trial to convict somebody of murder, that person has got to bring in the victim or bring somebody into the courtroom and shoot them right there in front of the jury. Then you can convict them. So, so, the, so the, 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 the necessary proofs, the, the, appro the, the appropriate logic, all of this is twisted and distorted. But this is not unusual. When governments decide to undermine the truth, and embark on massive information, disinformation and propaganda campaigns. They can put the citizens of a country into an absolute detached, a state detached from reality. This is what they do. Thus, you and, that way, and when they do that, you get North Korea. That's probably one of the worst cases. North Korea is one of the worst cases in all of human history on the manipulation containment of truth in order to create a, a completely detached from reality uh, set of human beings, the North Korean people. It's terrible. That's the extreme case. The United States has done this too. Japan has done it. Germany's done it. UK's done it. This is what government can do. People, citizens of these nations need to take the necessary measures to stop that. We need to develop a world in which the governments of nations do not embark on, on disinformation and propaganda campaigns to detach their citizens from reality. This never ends well. It doesn't end well. But until we do that, we'll have to put up with it. In the United States, the leading example of this is the truth embargo on the extraterrestrial presence. Now in its 70, least 74th year. And so... In that context, what's the answer to your question? Um, if I had to give a just a, a lay person one book that, if they were to read uh, with um, a certain amount of detachment uh, and and open mindedness, that again, it's, it's for a lay person. It's not for a scientist. It would be Witness to Roswell, particularly the expanded, expanded version. The Witness to Roswell by Don Schmidt and Thomas Carey, in which they essentially bring to bear the, the, the bulk of the enormous amount of witness testimony that they gathered. I think as many as 600 witnesses have, were ultimately uh, interviewed at one time or another by researchers regarding the Roswell events of July 1947. They, I know, interviewed a couple hundred. And they put this into the book, The Witness to Roswell. 
And I just do not believe that any reasonably intelligent person can read that book and at the end of it conclude, I still don't know if there are extraterrestrials. I don't know. Can't be sure. I just think they have to conclude what is obvious and that there were extraterrestrial beings that were involved in the Roswell crash. Some were dead. One was alive. And at that point, the government, of course, knew the obvious, that we aren't alone. And then the the, the truth embargo, the embargo of that, which was more like a cover-up at the time at that point, but still embargo, began. So that would be my answer. Read The Witness to Roswell, Expanded Edition, and then just sit quietly and think, is there another explanation for what these hundreds of people saw? No, I will come back to a question I've got on that, but um, that that is very interesting. Let me ask, and you're talking about something that, that I've mentioned a few times on the podcast that I feel when it comes to this topic or subject, that it's not just one, there's not going to be that smoking gun, like you say, that, that terminology that's always put out there, that one piece of evidence doesn't exist and won't exist. But of course not. there's a folder that is packed with testimony and witness accounts and experiences and, you know, all, all of that stuff. Do you remember a time where you first saw an investigation and you've seen multiple pieces of evidence and read multiple texts where you saw something that really clicked you into that next gear? Or has it always been that continuing process of, of taking in information? Oh, it's worse than that. I, 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 did, I, did, I didn't have that moment. I knew there was extraterrestrials here when I was a teenager. I would ask how. You see, you see the, way, the way propaganda works, the way lies work, are repeating them over and over and over and over again in a formal setting until people just go, well, it's got to be true. It's a, it's, a, it's a field distortion. Reality gets turned upside down. Okay, that's how it works. But in the early days, uh, so I'm a kid, let's say, Let's take me up to being about 15 years, 16 years old. So that would be 1961. And uh, the early days, it, the truth embargo was certainly underway, but it, it hadn't achieved its full glory. So, uh, so uh, what was happening back in those days, in the 50s and 60s, was that, that things were happening, and they'd be, there'd be a, an article about it paper would write something up and so forth um and i was i was seeing these i was seeing these articles about this or article about that i read the look magazine article about betty and barney hill which was basically a a write-up of that case it it wasn't a propaganda piece it was a write-up because back then if something was kind of in the news uh, and, and you were a magazine or a newspaper of, of quality, you, you could write it up. And I read that and I went, well, clearly this was an extraterrestrial encounter by Betty and Barney Hill. I had no, I had no uh, bias. I had no stake in that. I was simply a citizen 
Now, a teenager reading this article is extraordinary, the extraordinary case of Betty and Barney Hill. And at that point, I said, well, clearly that's what it is. And then I would I would read another this uh, a sighting event or what have you. And simply as, as an unbiased person, relatively intelligent reading this, it was clear that the proper explanation was extraterrestrial. Uh, now, why am I why am I saying this? Look, not everything has to go through ten thousand peer review papers, right? And and the vast scientific rigor in order to arrive at a quote conclusion. Not everything has to have a ten week trial to arrive at a conclusion. Those things are uh, are something we do because the importance of science getting things right so you can move on to other phenomena or build on that information base is extremely um, significant for society. And the importance of getting uh, it right when somebody is on trial for murder is obviously significant, which is why beyond a reasonable doubt is there. And many, many murders are acquitted. That's all, but that's all right. That's, these are criteria we use in our society for valid reasons. That doesn't mean that all of that has to take place in order to arrive at a pretty solid conclusion. So in my teens, it was self-evident for me that this was extraterrestrial. And I was dying to learn more. And I think, well, one day we're going to learn more about that. That's going to be cool. What's going on? And then I went about being a teenager and then going to college and living my life. So I didn't need to see some profound piece of evidence later on. I already knew. And why do I, when I say new, satis- I, I was, uh, in other words, my, my intellect to, to whatever it was, without any particular bias, was pretty satisfied that that was the explanation. Now, why, why am I pointing this out? Because millions and millions and millions of people felt the same way. Even in the 50s, in the 60s, they, 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 they got it. But again, it was like, what, what can you do? I mean, you will eventually learn more. The government will clearly, you know, I'm sure the government's clearly looking into this, of course, and they're studying it, and then they're going to be able to provide us hard information about what's going on. But they never did. And when I went to college, in 1964, I arrived as the Vietnam War was taking off. And then that was another kind of interesting moment for me. As the Vietnam War took off in college, with each passing month, I began to be deeply suspicious that what the government was saying about that war wasn't true. It wasn't as, there wasn't much I could do about that. Years later, I would learn that it absolutely wasn't true that the government had used lies and propaganda in order to convince the people to support something they should never have supported. And perhaps it then it began to dawn on me. If the United States government can lie 
about a war that's killing hundreds of thousands of people and tens of thousands of American soldiers, the U.S. government is capable of lying about anything. And so as time went by, uh, I think in, in the back of my mind, at least, when nothing was getting resolved about this phenomena, that very likely the fix was in. So um, as we go forward and I get into the field, I'm all, I already know there's an extraterrestrial presence. So nothing I'm going to see or read is going to go, oh, wow, bang, there's an extraterrestrial now. Hell no, I've already know. So, and for most people, that's not the way it is. Most people are not paying attention, just your average person. And so you could ask them, right? Someone who has no idea about this, never really thought about it much. What, what, when they finally figure it out, and they all will, what was it that brought you there? But I'll tell you, for a significant portion of the human race, the moment where they have that light bulb go off in their head that says, oh, we're not alone in the universe. There's other civilizations there and they're actually engaging us will be disclosure day. It will be the day that the heads of state starting hopefully with probably with our president goes in front of the world, goes in front of the public, goes in front of a microphone and confirms the extraterrestrial presence. That'll be it for them. That will be Wow. Allow so me, that, Stephen. That's my answer. Uh, no, that's, that's a good answer. Listen, it's, it's, it's lovely listening to you talk as well. I'm going to come to that in just a second about disclosure with a small D and a capital D. Just before I do, I want to talk to you about someone else who um, very much seems to be someone in the know or has always been talked about someone in the know. And uh, I heard you about four years ago. Um, Donald Trump had just won the election in the US. Barack Obama was the outgoing president. And Hillary Clinton, of course, famously lost that election. Um, um, now, you were talking about Hillary had the chance to play the, the ET card to her advantage, and she could have mm -hmm. blown the election wide open. But obviously, we know in hindsight, she didn't. Do you feel now, had Hillary won that presidency, that we would be in a different landscape when it comes to the, a potential ET presence? We would have had disclosure three years ago. We'd be three years into the post-disclosure world. And the last three years would have been a hell of a lot more interesting and productive. Uh, how, can I how, say? how do you see that would have played out, though? How do you, as a president, how does Hillary Clinton, as the president, introduce that? She's gonna, it's gonna, it would have happened under her exactly the way it's happening under Biden. Um, history is, is, is tough. History is like an ocean. Sometimes it's a calm sea, light breeze, very calm. And whatever boat is out there, and there are many boats, generally they, get, they can get where they're going. So they want to go from here to there, from this island to that island. They set off and they get there. On the other hand, history can become like that. The sea can become quite difficult. That sea can make it almost impossible to, you know, to maintain a proper heading, take you completely off course, strip your sails and leave you in the middle of the ocean, unable to move forward at all, or just capsize you and, and sink your boat. 
That's history. So when you get involved in history, not just existing, living, moving from day to day, doing your life, but when you get involved in history, when you get involved in things that are operating at the level of significant historical implications, then you are now sailing on that sea. And boy, it can change. Uh, it can change in a moment. One minute, things are fine. Two hours later, you're in the middle of a squall. You've got, you've got waves 10 feet high. This has happened many times. It is a tough road. That's why there's an awful lot of sailors at the bottom of the ocean. So as we move into the election of 2016, uh, I was able to successfully get the media to take up the rather important story of the connection between Secretary Clinton, candidate Secretary Clinton, her husband, her campaign chair, John Podesta, those three for sure, but ultimately included Barack Obama, the President Obama, to do what I should, they shouldn't have had to have been prompted to do, but because of the embargo, they needed a little help. I was able to, from Washington, able to generate the storyline about the connection between this candidate who was long favored, favored to be long arts favored to be the, the next president. And the fact that there was this substantial historical connection to the ET issue. And they started writing stories. Uh, they started contacting her and Podesta uh, about these stories about for commenting and, 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 and they weren't getting a response. This forced their hand and they started coming forward limited way. Uh, Podesta made statements. She went on shows, brought up the UAP issue and many other things about 11 times during the campaign. Never happened before in history. And it was a huge story. 400 articles, at least. That's just English language. Probably many hundreds more foreign language. All about ETs and Secretary Clinton. So uh, that clearly was uh, going to be followed up on if she won the election. In other words, not just her historical connection to the issue and her husband's and Podesta's, but also everything she said during the campaign. So it was a totally successful effort out of Washington, D.C. Very few people know about this. Um, uh, but I know, and my public relations persons knows. maybe one day it'll get told. So everything is going fine. And one of the reasons it was, it was going fine is because I'm convinced that Secretary Clinton fully intended to end the truth embargo uh, in order to seek justice for the fact that her husband tried to get that issue out, tried to get files, and was stonewalled by his own government and attacked. I mean, he was attacked and belittled. His, his political capital was undermined. I mean, he was, he was raked over the coals partially because of the ET issue, and it made her pretty mad. When she left, she was a very angry woman. And so she was now going to get that legacy. She was going to be the first woman president and the president who forced a bunch of men over at the Pentagon to put up or be, be gone. Deliver or you're gone. Your replacements deliver or they're gone. So this, this, her historical legacy is literally laying out before her. It's going to be huge. So all good. And then history 
that that ocean ocean squall turned up and very soon the waves were 10 feet high wikileaks release there were two wikileaks releases both of them damaged the democrats you had the actions of the fbi decisions to make uh, they made during the end of the campaign very upsetting and she loses the election if she had and and, and everything changes in, in other words she's lost the election my boats capsized i know a few other boats were capsized we're upside down in the water sitting on the hulls the, the, the seas are calming a little bit and then we wait for the next president to take over and when that president took over the storm came back and raged for four solid years so everything that we were doing between 9, January of 1917 and the present or or uh, November December 2020 20, uh, um was done in the middle of a raging storm, a historical storm. So what she would have very likely done is exactly what's going to happen now. Okay. And let's said that. I was going to say, let, let me ask you on that. You, you also talked um, about disclosure um, and there's disclosure with a small d and disclosure with a, a yeah, capital yeah. D. Um, now you're 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 certain you're convinced, and you've you've talked on this, and like you've said here, that we're going to get that disclosure with a small D as a process, and capital D disclosure as as the event or an event itself. Right. Do you still feel, even now, we are guaranteed to get that capital D disclosure as opposed to a I'll use air quotes confirmation? And I'm asking this on the basis that a confirmation would be more likely to absolve any government. Let's just say the US, like you say, more than likely would come from the United States um, to steer clear of any blame or kind of past discrepancies, given the, the historical cover up that's gone on. Look, that's five questions. Uh, look, look, it's simple. Disclosure, small d, disclosure process has been going on since 1947. Relentless. He's never stopped. People getting information, finding information, publishing information, talking, whatever. All of the information gathering, research, everything else is small d disclosure, trying to get information out about this. And I say, and why does that term have any special meaning, even with a small d? Uh, because we're applying it to the ET issue. Disclosure about everything is going on all the time. <laughs> yeah. When the, when the, uh, the, 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 the Washington D's publishes a new metro schedule, that's a disclosure. It's, a, it's new information. But, so, but we, and with respect to the ET issue, it, it has a little more special meaning. It, disclosure, disclosure process, small d, is the unfolding process of information regarding the extraterrestrial presence. Continues to this day. It'll continue for years and years to come. Disclosure with a capital D, which is something that I was pushing um, uh, might have even started. I'm not sure. Disclosure with a small d. Other people were already using that in a very formal way. But what, I think I may have been the first one to put the capital D on it and, and try to use it in this term. But whatever. That is the that's that, that is the confirmation day. Disclosure with a capital D is defined by the activist movement 
as this and only this. There are no other interpretations. It is the formal confirmation of an extraterrestrial presence engaging the human race by the heads of state of nations. So when that confirmation comes out of the mouth of the president of the United States or the president of China or the president of, of Russia, formally in front of uh, a microphone and press, we have not had disclosure capital D. That's all it is. If you don't, if that, if that, ha- I don't, if some, anybody else in government gives a press conference and says, uh, I'm pretty sure there's ETs here. That's not disclosure. Has to come from the head of state. Now, if some confusion there, small d, little d, a lot of people don't have time for those kinds of distinctions. I get it. And so some have tried to use the word confirmation, which is fine, but it's a formal confirmation. It's a big confirmation. So disclosure, capital D is the formal confirmation of the extraterrestrial presence by the head of state. So we got that, right? And the question has always been, from the day I got involved, how do we get it? How, how, how do we get to a place where the president of any country can actually do that? And that has been the disclosure activist movement, right? which is what I am. I'm a disclosure activist or an exo-political activist, uh, or just a political activist, trying to get the government to do something. In fact, all activism, I'm not aware of, there aren't many ca- ex- uh, examples uh, that, that refute this, but I'm sure that there are a few. You can find a couple, but the vast majority of all activism, even at the local, state, federal level, global level, is they have one thing in common. The people, it's always the people, are trying to get authority, formal authority, to do something it doesn't want to do. It's that simple. And well, what is it that the authority doesn't want to do in this case? It doesn't want to confirm the extraterrestrial presence. And we need to get it to do that. Which brings us to the probably the most important info I can provide your listeners in the UK. I love the UK, by the way. Been there many times, spent months in London, been to Scotland, been all over the place. Love the country, love the people. It's a cool place. So the way disclosure needs to take place, given how important it is, Given the implications it has, it will be the most profound event in human history based upon the number of people impacted in one form or fashion and the amount of time it will take for that impact to hit. Nothing in history will even remotely compare. It's a big deal. So it has to be done right. When you do something big, okay, if, if something that big has got to be handled properly, like a royal wedding. <laughs> you just can't decide, oh, let's, let's hold it next Wednesday. And I don't know, somebody get a cater, throw it together, whatever, invite a few friends. You, no, 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 no. You don't, you don't, you can't do that. So the way that it always had to happen, and I knew this 25 years ago, 
was that in the United States, though this does apply, I think, to other countries, a number of other countries, not all. The way it, I say has to happen, the way it should appropriately happen, because it's the most positive, constructive, least upsetting, disrupting process in the United States, is that the Congress needs to call for hearings for people, for, for evidence and testimony, particularly testimony, to be presented to congressional committees so that the congressional committees can make informed decision about legislation. That is how our democratic republic works, how to deal with a particular issue. They need informed, uh, to make informed decisions about it. And one of the, way that, one of the ways that they do that is they, they take testimony under oath. Uh, the oath is, a, is to help ensure the information is, is uh, going to be valid because if it's not, those people face penalties for perjury. And that needs to happen. And they need to be public in some cases because if the public can watch the process unfold, the republic is getting the public, public, the public, uh, the citizens are getting that information at the same time, in most cases. Then that further supports the process and the confidence of the people. No, no mysteries here. The committee chairs and the committee members heard just what we just saw on camera. That doesn't always happen because the issues are not important enough. But the more important the issue, the more the need for the cameras to be in the room. This is self-evident, right? And then once that testimony has been received, the executive branch can all review it, discuss it with members of Congress and arrive at a conclusion and arrive at a course of action. This is, doesn't happen immediately, but it's, and it can be, it can take weeks. It might take much longer, could take months, but that's the way something of this magnitude is supposed to happen, which is why people, a number of people, some of I know, some I don't, have been trying to get those hearings for 52 years. The last hearing on the subject of extraterrestrials or UFOs was 1968 in the House lasted a single day. There were four, I think, four people testified and there were some reports. That was it. That was it. The next year, they disbanded Blue Book and basically said, uh, we don't need to study this anymore. Um, that, that wasn't a real attempt to get information to make informed decisions. That was a show hearing. I'm not saying that the te people who testified were doing that, but the Congress and the White House, that was a show hearing. Get it done. Close down Blue Book. Let's move on. So in the 52 years since, every effort to get hearings has been blocked, cold, stop cold. Couldn't happen because with each passing year, the government or the elements of the government that dealt with this issue knew that hearings like that, proper hearings over days, Many number, many committees, many witnesses would end the truth embargo and the truth embargo cannot end. Therefore, there cannot be hearings. And so 
what Clinton would have done, almost certainly. And there's, there's, it's not the only way to end the truth embargo. As I've said, if Clinton had won the presidency, she could have, once she got the, the White House set up and everybody's uh, in place, she could have sent an emissary over to the Pentagon uh, to meet with the top Pentagon officials, top people, including her own Secretary of Defense, and basically said, the president intends to bring the truth of this matter to the American people. And the Pentagon working with what other appropriate agencies are necessary, will provide to her in less than 30 days, no less than 30 days, a full and comprehensive report of what the government knows about this issue, the names of all of the unidentified, or rather the uh, unacknowledged special access programs, location of any research labs, bases, essentially the works. And if you don't provide that, Every one of you will be fired, every single one, and you will all be replaced. And the same request or demand will be made of the new people. And if they don't respond, they will be replaced. And we are prepared to replace the whole damn Pentagon if you do not deliver. And that would have been it. They would have delivered and she would have disclosed. And that's one way. But she wouldn't have done that. She would have simply encouraged committee chairs in Congress to call for hearings. And those hearings would have gotten underway. The focus would have been national security. That's the logical focus for such hearings to begin with. The witnesses would have been predominantly, if not exclusively, military. Military witnesses. Men and women who took an oath to serve and are now taking another oath to testify. And those hearings would have presented evidence in front of the American people. And by that, I mean hundreds of millions of people around the world, because these would be the most watched hearings in all of history with a, the evidentiary testimony until such time as it was obvious to anybody who got past junior high school that, of course, the extraterrestrial presence is, in fact, the explanation that then allows the president to confer with members of Congress or key, key congressional leaders, as well as uh, important, important uh, uh, people in the DOD, appropriate people in the DOD, privately confer and arrive at the conclusion that, yes, the evidence confirms the ET presence. We have watched it. The American people have watched it. And so it's now appropriate that I go before the American people and confirm what that evidence presents. That would be exactly the way it has to be done, and we would thus be in the post-disclosure world. There would be all kinds of questions, public relations problems for some people, not for others, and that we would already be three years down the line. Let me ask you on that, Stephen. The UAP task force report is currently scheduled to be um, published in June, although obviously there's a lot of rumours coming up that it's more than likely going to be delayed. None other than Chris Mellon has, has confirmed that himself. Not confirmed, but he's, he he's hasn't stated confirmed it. No, he's not confirmed, no, but more than likely he said it, it's going to be delayed. That would be the mm-hmm. most likely outcome. What do you see that report containing uh, when it does, if indeed, come out in June? <laughs> I have no idea what's going to be in it. However, that brings me to the second half of that response. You see, everything I just described that I believe would have happened if Hillary Clinton, Secretary Hillary Clinton, had won the presidency is about to happen now 
under President Biden. And while my effort to get this done was the election initiative that I discussed, generating all those articles and coverage and forcing the Clinton political team out of cover where they did have to make some statements, statements that they were always going to have to live with. Um, John Podesta herself, her husband and Barack Obama uh, didn't work, didn't happen. And so when she lost the election, I, I, I had basically <laughs> had my shot. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then I went to London and, and sort of left the field of play. But a new entrant into this disclosure process emerged in October of 2017. And it's what they've done during this past four years that has created the situation where what I discussed will now take place. And I'm talking about the To The Stars Academy and all that it has done and all of the reactions to it and other things that have happened because of it. Uh, and this, whereas my political initiative took place between January of 2015 and the election of 2016, probably 20 months, they have been at this now for three years, a little longer. Um, from October of 2017 to October 2020, that's three years. So, it's, you know, it's about three, three years, five months. And they, they, they had, they had some uh, tools in their tool chest that I didn't have. They, they, they came forward as a group of individuals from the military intelligence complex with long careers uh, as private citizens and an NGO, non-government organization. And the first act that they did was to provide the New York Times with uh, the uh, uh, information that the New York Times eventually vetted and, and published in uh, December 16th, 2017. These are the two uh, major articles on the front page, of which I think most of your listeners know about. Then they followed up with a series on History Channel called Unidentified. Inside America's secret UFO investigation, 14 episodes. They did that and they started giving more interviews and speaking to the issue, writing op eds, things like that. And that, that's going on, it's been going on all the way back to uh, October of 2017. And this, what they did, significantly changed. The, the, the situation. Uh, they have moved the ball well down the field. Uh, and, and there have been many consequences of that, but they lowered the bar for witnesses to come forward. They dramatically increased the willingness of Thaian media to write about this issue appropriately. They drove virtually all of the skeptics, the debunkers, the skeptabunkers and anybody else with a bizarre desire to become the Phil class of the 21st century, they drove them off the field. And things started happening. 
we started seeing reactions and so forth. And there's not enough time to go through all that, though I will, I will tell your listeners how they can learn about all of that in a second. But the, the two things that were most important that emerged from this project, the To the Stars Academy of Arts and Science, we just tend to call it the To the Stars Academy or the TTSA, was this. One of the members, Christopher Mellon, is a former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Intelligence, long career, highly respected. And Louis Elizondo, long career with the Department of Defense as a uh, and, and, and intelligence operative working in many countries, uh, highly educated, highly skilled a fellow, seen it all, done it all, who's also a populist and a very nice guy. That was approachable guy. These two men essentially pursued what I believe and will continue to believe until I'm told otherwise, what would the, the fundamental agenda of the To The Stars Academy and why it was set up in the first place. Uh, Elizondo, one of his key jobs was dealing with witnesses, military men and some, maybe some women. He interviewed them, vetted them. Many turned up on the unidentified series, some in silhouette. And when they did that, they say they lowered the bar substantially for any military people who have compelling stories about the ET issue of one form and fashion to come forward because it was clear the risk of doing so was simply had evaporated and it wasn't going to be a problem. And there are thousands of them. We, we know that because of the unidentified show and other appearances he made that scores of military were contacting him privately. And that, and that's probably still going on. So it was going on for a couple of years. At the same time, we learned that Christopher Mellon had made a decision. Well, he, he, had, he had decided to engage the Congress. Um, we didn't learn about this until mid in, in 2019. He wrote an op-ed in the Hill newspaper, which is a very important newspaper in Washington. People outside of Washington may not know about it, but the Hill is, they have, a, they have a very important website, but the Hill is a very important political newspaper in Washington. He wrote an op-ed uh, in, uh, I forget, maybe May of 2019, uh, basically saying that the Congress needs to get involved here. The Congress needs to engage this. He had previously written an op-ed in the, in the Washington Post saying that the, the Pentagon needs to get on the ball here, right? Uh, but now he wrote this op-ed in the Hill about Congress needs to get involved. Later that year, we got wind that he was up on the Hill holding meetings with members of Congress, almost certainly focused on committee chairs there are, and, and ranking members. There are six key committees that would would be involved in hearings of this uh, in regarding this issue. The two most important are the intelligence committees of the House and Senate. And the most important of that is the Senate Intelligence Committee. So we knew he was doing that. How many, we don't know. But some of the committee chairs or com uh, congressional members actually did 
let it be known that they had had a meeting, but not talking content. These were private, off-the-record briefings. We learned that witnesses were, uh, were also in those meetings. For sure, some of the pilots from the Nimitz and other pilots, but the total number of witnesses that might have been there, we don't know. But there were meetings on the Hill about this issue with committee chairs. Well, we learned that. All right. And so eventually we learned that the president also got one of these briefings. That's when I picked up stakes, started to raise the money to pick up stakes and move back to Washington in order to get back on the field. <laughs> I'd been sitting on the bench for a while. Once I heard that the president been briefed, that was it. So I came back to D.C. and did what I had to do. And so what is the uh, punchline here? They were doing things that I could never have done. I mean, I did what I could do because I, I had there, there were some things I could do and I did them, but I couldn't get a, a History Channel series. <laughs> I couldn't meet with aircraft pilots from the Nimitz. I, I didn't have a I didn't have the career of Christopher Mellon. I can go on the Hill and talk to committee chairs. They could. They were using their their background and their, their, their resumes and be able to do this. And they were listened to. And so ultimately, I figured it out. And I've been talking about this now extensively uh, since uh, December of last year. Is that the, the fundamental agenda of that project, forget everything else that was said or done and what the website says, fine. All that may be true. It's not saying it's not a. It's not a single dimension thing, but the fundamental agenda, the reason why they took the risk that they did forego the income that they had to forego was they were going to get the hearings that I was we we're talking about, had to get the hearings. And so where we are now is that Luis Elizondo has essentially accumulated a very long list of military witnesses. Christopher Mellon has set the stage for the committee chairs to call for hearings for these witnesses. And we're going to get those hearings, the hearings that we have been trying to get since 1968. And when those hearings take place, they will be before a number of committees. Almost all, if not all, of the witnesses will be military, retired or active. Those hearings will be seen by hundreds of millions of people around the world. They will be televised. Some things will be taken in private session, I meaning some things will be classified and, and uh, the witnesses will testify about that in a classified secret session. That's, that's fine. But the vast majority will be public hearings. And these hearings will go on for a while, but not but after a relatively short amount of time, weeks. The president of the United States will be able to do what I just said and what would have likely happened under Clinton. The president can confer with the congressional leaders in the Pentagon and say, what do you think, gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen? And they will say, Mr. President, I think it's compelling. Uh, clearly, we have a non-human engagement by uh, extraterrestrials. And then the president can go in front of the American people and say, I've seen the evidence. You've seen the evidence. I've conferred with my top leaders, my top officials and support advisors. And I think we can confirm to you that, yes, that evidence confirms the extraterrestrial presence. And that's the way it has to be done. That's the end of the embargo and the beginning of the post-disclosure world. It's constructive. It's public. Uh, everybody wins. 
the president wins, he 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 is like, hey, I've I've seen the evidence. You've seen the evidence. Here it is. As opposed to some president coming forward and saying, I'm going to tell you today there's extraterrestrials here. I knew about it, hell, 35 years ago, but I decided to go along with the truth embargo. But here it is today. If you don't like that, pound sand. No. It's, it, the president's in a comfortable position. All of the committee members that, that, that take this testimony will be heroes around the world. The committee chairs particularly both parties will be involved, nonpartisan issue. They are winners. The DOD's participation and assistance, it's a winner. Everybody wins. Now, there is plenty of real difficult questions to answer, ultimately, and plenty of difficult things the American people are going to learn. But this is as win, win, win as it's ever going to get. And that's the way it has to be. And now you may say, OK, why hasn't it happened yet? First of all, let me say this. It, need, it needs to happen as soon as possible. In other words, as far as I was concerned, once Biden took office, hell, it could have happened the next week. And there are some compelling reasons for that. But remember that historical, that, his, that ocean of history that I was talking about? The storms are still raging. The waves are high. And so right now, the number, the things that are, most impacting when these hearings get underway are one, the progress of COVID-19 mutations and to what degree they're going to spread, particularly in the US, uh, and how, how, yeah, and how infectious they are, and so forth, that could extend this pandemic further than we had hoped. I happen to believe that there's going to be one more surge. It's just starting. It's going to be the worst. It's going to be very, very bad. But then there is the vaccine schedule. And so while the, the mutation variant problem is unfolding at the same time, we are accelerating the vaccine delivery. And so if that continues at a strong pace, that is going to help profoundly make it possible for these hearings. So these are the two things. And then there's a third thing in that some of the grotesque politics is still with us. In other words, things just didn't settle down after the election in November. It got worse and worse and very interesting things happened. And so, and the, and the politics in the Senate, because of the fact that things did not settle down, the politics in Congress, particularly in the Senate, are toxic. Um, uh, boy, what's the word I'm looking for? It's, it's, it's bad. Okay. Extremely bad. So these are the, the very, the key variables. All right. There's four and I'm watching them very closely. And as they begin to clarify, then the potential for hearings is there. Now, the advantage of that is that as we go forward in the, in the coming weeks, maybe months, I've, I've just got lots of time to get in front of every friggin' camera and, and television camera and, and microphone and talk about this ad infinitum. I've already booked 69 interviews just this year. I'll book another hundred over the next month or two easily, maybe more. Uh, so we, we and, and others are joining in. You've, you've got you've got uh, activist minded people doing things and 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 and, and, law, and po posting about this on Facebook and Twitter and podcasts and everything else. So the. The movement is actually building momentum 
as uh, we wait for these variables to to change. So what's the time frame? Now it can't, there's no way it can happen before May. Probably not even before June. June, June might be the absolute soonest at this point. July is definitely a possibility. Uh, so I'm looking in that June, July timeframe. And I'll finish with this. If you're looking for one thing that might be a, one next thing, so I've seen plenty of things, but one next thing that might be a really strong tip-off that these hearings are coming. Watch for a very significant investigative piece to drop in the New York Times. As you know, they helped to launch this issue uh, or this new phase with those articles in December of 2017. They've had three years. They haven't done any significant follow-up. There have been a few articles, but they haven't done any investigative follow-ups. The New York Times has had three years to pick any aspect of this field, this issue rather, and, and, and put some serious investigative reporters on it and dig and come up with some interesting stuff. I think they have done it. And I think they've got some reports ready to go. And the question is, when do they launch them? Uh, if one of those big reports turns up in the New York Times, that will be everyone's, I think, notice that the hearing process is still quite alive and may be coming very soon. Shut out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see it.